Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast if you've been listening for a few years you know that around this time of year i usually take a month or a month and a half off to refresh my brain This year, instead of just having a gap in the episodes, I'm going to republish some episodes that we did on other podcasts. So this one is from the Punk Rock MBA podcast run by Finn McKenty, where my business partner, Joey Sturgis, went on and they had a pretty great conversation. I know you'll love it. Here goes. Joey Sturgis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Finn McKenty, thank you very much. <laughs> this is where I put on my podcast voice, like, hey, everybody, welcome back. Welcome to the <laughs> URM podcast. Watch out for brake lights on the 405. <laughs> yep, love it. <laughs> well, we're all quarantined here, and just like we were talking about, I'm taking the opportunity to nail down a lot of busy people and get them on the podcast, and a lot of people have asked me to talk to you, and I am also going to make a video about you. So I figured this could be killing two birds with one stone. I can do my research for the video and also make a podcast, and then everybody wins. You see, this is why people say you're smart, because <laughs> you do things like that. <laughs> and I'm recording this podcast with JST Finality Advanced in my signal chain. So if you like the way this sounds... <laughs> Then head over to joeysturgistones.com and get yourself a copy of Finality Advanced. <laughs> Integrated marketing. Love it. Exactly. Thank you. I really do use it though. Cool. Well, what I wanted to do is just kind of walk through, you know, basically your history of how you got from there to here. Because I think people know pieces of it, but they don't know the whole thing. And I think there's also a lot of maybe incorrect perceptions that I've heard that hopefully we can correct on the show. The first thing that I think people don't know about you, so before you started recording or anything like that, you were in a bunch of bands that I think people would be surprised by. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, when I was nine years old, I learned how to play the drums in my basement. And my family is a musical family, so playing instruments is a pretty normal thing. In fact, you know, at Thanksgiving time, we would go to my grandpa's house and we'd have a jam session in a living room, you know? He would bust out his amp and play his Gibson, and my Aunt Kathy would jump on the piano in the corner of the room and play that, and 
you know, we just all, we jammed as a family and I learned how to play from my family. And I, that just naturally progresses to in high school, you know, you want to be the cool kid. You want to be in a band, you want to do the rocker thing. And so I did that for a while. And even before then, like I can remember when I was like 10 or 11 years old, I was in bands that where all the band members were like in their twenties. And we would play shows and I would barely reach the kick pedal from the, because <laughs> I'd share a drum set with like an adult, you know? And so, and you were playing drums in all these bands? Yeah, I was a drummer uh, primarily. And I, I did learn how to play guitar a little later on. And a guitar is naturally a lot easier to just pick up. Like I have a guitar sitting next to me right now. I could grab it and start playing it. But a drum set is a little more you got to set it all up. It's really loud. You got to tell everyone in the house, hey, I'm going to be playing drums. Like this is going to be super annoying, you know? Right. It's less convenient. But yeah, so I played in a grindcore band. That was like the first sort of band that I like started. The bands that I played in when I was younger, those were like other people's bands and I was just sort of in their band kind of thing. But in, in high school, I started my own like grindcore band with my best friend. We, you know, wrote and recorded our own demo and used that to try and get us like shows on MySpace. And that's how I actually became a producer because when people heard that demo, they were so impressed with the recording that they started asking us and you know, you, how you could like privately message people on uh, MySpace. They'd be like, well, where did you guys record? We just thought that was so odd, but that turned into a whole thing where I was like, well, you know, maybe it'd be fun to record other bands and it just got all started from there. So how did you record that back then? Because this was before any of that was nearly as easy as it is now. Yeah, well, you know, I was always fascinated with computers in general. So being fascinated with music and with computers and taking that combination of things, you're going to naturally end up in front of a some kind of recording application. You know, at some point in your life, you're going to go down that rabbit hole. And for me, that was around my early teens I would mess around on a program called Sony Acid Pro. And at the time, I didn't really have a way to record like super high quality sounding, you know, tracks. So I would download other people's tracks from the internet and throw them together and try to create songs out of it. One thing leads to another and I'm in these bands with these older people and one of my friends has a garage where he made like uh, basically a home recording setup. And this is back in the days where home recording wasn't very popular. It wasn't like you could go to musiciansfriend.com and go buy like four or five things and then start recording. It was actually... So this is like 2005-ish or something? Yeah, like 2004, 2005. You had to buy like a PCI card with like this big freaking cable on the back of it that plugs right. to a like external unit. And, it, you know, it just wasn't as convenient as it is today. Those big like breakout boxes and all that stuff. Yeah, he had all that stuff and he worked uh, really weird hours. So I was a night owl and I was like, dude, I know you're going to be asleep or you're going to be at work. Can I be in here like messing around with this stuff? Because he had cooler stuff than I did basically. And uh, he was like, sure. So he gave me the keys. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned, but this guy was like in my band. So okay. it wasn't like super weird to ask him this. And so, yeah, I would go on there and he would record. So he at that time, he was like recording uh, some of his friends and stuff. So at night, I would open their sessions and I would do a save as so that I didn't mess up anything that they were doing and basically make my own versions of the songs that they would record. I would do my own mixes. I would change, like sometimes I even changed parts, like messed around with it a lot. 
and got to the point where I actually, I created something that I thought was really awesome and I showed it to them and they were like, whoa, this is amazing. Could you actually like mix our record? And I was like, I don't really know what the hell I'm doing, but I'll give it a shot. (laughs) And I mixed it and they loved it. And then it just kind of progressed from there. It got to the point where I wanted to, I was in a different band and I was like, okay, now I have access to all this stuff. I'm in my new band. Let's record our own demo and let me mix and produce that whole thing. Well, what I love about that is that this is in Indiana, right? Yeah, Connersville, Indiana, middle of nowhere. Bumfuck, Indiana. So what I love about that is that you took the, you know, or you saw that there was some opportunity to kind of cobble together whatever resources you had, which was not a lot, but you had something. And you, like, first of all, recognized that you had the pieces. And then even though you didn't really know what you were doing and nobody kind of told you how to do it or even that it was possible, you just jumped in and said, well, I guess I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, because when you live in a small town like Connersville, and you're not one of the cool kids. I mean, even though I was in these bands, there would be times where I would be hanging out with my band and I was obviously the outcast. I was obviously the the third wheel or whatever. So it was something for me to really dig into other than video games. Like all I had basically was computers, video games, and music. And so this was a really cool way to take the only things that I really had interest in and combine them together. So I was really just kind of obsessive about it. I would just play around for hours and hours, you know, inside the recording program because I just really didn't have any other choice. There's really nothing else for me to do. I could play video games endlessly, but that only has a certain level of productivity outcome. Can only do it so long. Yeah. You also made some of your own games back then, right? Yeah, that's like one of the the corners of my triangle, I guess you could say. Um, I loved programming. Basically getting on my computer and creating stuff that wasn't there before and having it be interactive. I just thought that was such an amazing thing that computers could do. I actually did spend several years (laughs) programming uh, an RPG, an online RPG, actually. I did get it to the point where, you know, it had like 100 players online. And that was a pretty fun time of my life. And, and I ended up uh, actually selling the source code to that game to several different people and made a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> it's still a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, I mean, back then it was like, wow, I can't believe I just wrote some code and then sold it to someone. <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't realize that it was online. I've seen screenshots of it. I didn't, I didn't know that. What was the language or application or whatever that you made it in? So I learned how to do a lot of different things like JavaScript and Java and even as far as Visual Basic, C++, all that stuff. But this game was created on something called Beyond. It was a custom language. The language was called DM and the site still exists. It's byond.com. And uh, my screen name was Fire King. So if you look up anything <laughs> from Fire King, you can see my old stomping grounds on the forums there. When I, Was this like a game maker type thing or something? Yeah, it was like an online game maker kind of thing. I see. It never really took off because they couldn't figure out the, the monetization. And then they tried to survive on donations, which didn't work out too well for them. But over the course of, I don't know how long I was involved in that, I'd have to say at least a decade, I probably donated around $3,000 to their uh, their cause because it was a really great platform. And you could make games. I mean, there are games. I think the most popular game that ever came out of that was, I want to say Space Station. Going to look it up real quick. Well, while you're doing that, I want to point something out about you that everyone should take away from is that like, if there's anything about you that to me is a common theme is your willingness and ability to just jump in and learn anything you want. And 
that you don't ever really question whether you will be able to figure it out or not. You're just like, well, I know I will be able to figure it out eventually, so let's do it. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way at all. I think it's just like you believe that you can figure things out. Yes, I'm a self-learner. I love to learn things on my own. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, I definitely kind of struggled in school because it just wasn't my way of learning, you know, just sitting in a classroom and waiting for the teacher to get to the cool parts. But I think what's when you're a self-learner, you also have to realize that you can go learn the cool, flashy things, but then you'll have to eventually fill in the gaps. And mm-hmm. that's something that when you find your interests, you find the things that you really do, like that you attract towards, you'll naturally go and figure those things out. You'll go down that rabbit hole when it's something that you actually really like. So for me, I mean, like I said, music, programming, games, like if there was a way to make a music game, with programming, then that would probably be the pinnacle of, <laughs> of what I actually like. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's your next thing. Yeah. So when did you decide to be a producer to take that seriously? Um, I think when I realized that I could actually turn it into money and it was a fun way to make money is when I started to be way more into the idea of doing it. Because it wasn't something that I ever set out to do. It wasn't like, I'm going to be the best producer on earth. Like, Never had that thought. In fact, you might even find that weird because my uncle was a professional producer for my entire life. Like every time he would come home from Nashville, Tennessee for our family get togethers, you would expect me to be like, oh, who'd you record? And let me hear. Right. Like, but I did it. It just wasn't a thing. Like I would, in, in fact, I would be in the back room playing Dungeons and Dragons with my cousins. <laughs> but the way things worked out was I just couldn't make money from my game. I couldn't make money. I, I couldn't make more money at the computer shop that I worked at. I was just, I guess, looking for a way to make more money like most people do. Because you wanted to get rich, because you wanted to just get by or like, how were you thinking about money then? I definitely did not have any sort of aspirations of becoming rich or wealthy or anything like that. I mean, I grew up in a poor family. We barely scraped by all the time. And so Having more money just meant, oh, I can play more games or I can buy more like cool stuff that I like, you know, and maybe I can afford to buy the more expensive uh, soda pop than <laughs> as opposed to like the, generic the 35 one. cent Fago, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think that was the drive. And so you're what, like 18 or something like that, when 18, 19, when you decided to like be more serious about it? Yeah, actually... I know another driver of why I wanted the money. I had a long distance relationship for six years with someone who lived in the state of Washington. And so I always wanted to be able to afford plane tickets. But that was like in my 20s. Got it. So I I assume you're working with like local bands and stuff at the beginning. Yeah. And what was the first kind of breakthrough band for you? Was that the Devil Wars Prada? Or was there something before that? I mean, there was definitely... uh, a tier of artistry underneath of them that led to that. Mm-hmm. Like bands like Gwen Stacy, for example. There was a time period where I think Gwen Stacy was more successful than the Devil Wears Prada. Sure, yeah. And they're, are they from Toledo? I don't have that in my memory. <laughs> Somewhere around your area. Yeah. I was like climbing the ladder of local artists and getting to the point where I was starting to basically work with you know, the more popular acts in those cities, in those states. Mm -hmm. And that was going to obviously lead me to that direction. But I would say the, when you look at the whole thing 
from a bird's eye view. The Devil Wears Prada was sort of the first sort of like exciting artist because it was like they weren't signed and then I recorded with them and then they got signed and then we did an album and then that did really well and then they did like an amazing music video. So it was kind of like, it was like a Hollywood movie in a sense in comparison to all the other people that I worked with at that time. Right. You didn't do their very first recording, right? I did the Patterns of the Horizon EP. If they have anything before that, I'm not sure, but... Okay, so the first one the first one is yours. Yeah. Okay, because there's a noticeable difference between that first one and the next one. Like, it's a very clear leveling up. And to me, that was like the first kind of modern-sounding metalcore recording, and I think a lot of people felt the same. Like, oh, this sounds noticeably better than everything else. I had to step up, and there was a lot of time between those two albums because they had to basically go pound the pavement. I mean... There's pictures, I don't know if you could find them now, but they would take the CDs, they were burning the CDs themselves, they were putting them on the ground, and they were taking paint and like splattering paint on the CDs, and so that every single CD was a unique, different CD. And they were going out and, you know, peddling that CD and just putting it out there and getting it around, yeah. getting it uh, distributed uh, by basically by hand on foot. And there's a lot of time between that and them getting signed and then us recording again, right? So there's they're doing all of that stuff. And while that's happening, I'm getting progressively better really, really rapidly because I'm working with all kinds of different artists with all kinds of different challenges and things like that. Also, they had a really high standard. I mean, they were just like pushing me to just, they, they could go work with someone who was way more established at that at that time. Chris Crummett, for example, was in talks to maybe work with them. And so I really had to like look at that and go, do I want to let this opportunity slip out of my hands or do I want to really put the rubber to road and figure out how to improve myself and get to the level that these guys expect me to be at so that when they do come in, like this will be, you know, a great record. And it was- This was for Plagues? This was for the first album. Oh, oh, okay. So even then there was like, they were hot enough that- there was kind of competition to work with them. Yeah, because they would say things like, they'd be like, okay, Joey, like we want to use like real amps and we want to use like two different heads. And so you got to figure out like how to mic that up. And some of these things weren't my choices. It was just like, right. they were sort of like dreaming of what they wanted to do. And I just had to figure out how to make it work. But they were like kids, right? I mean, they were even younger than you. We were all kids. They were younger than me for sure. But it was the good old days where you were yeah. in the garage, like in the middle of nowhere, just like they just got these brand new amps and they were so stoked about them. And they wanted to like, because you, you got you to gotta use it. I mean, yeah. we paid for it. We've got to use it in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> As I recall, you kind of had your eye on them and really put in the work to land them as a client. Is that right? Yeah. So <laughs> this is like one of the best rejection stories of all time. Before you tell it, why did you have your eye on them? Like what made you go, I need to work with those guys? So it all began with, there was this band that I was in called Coraline and they had just lost their drummer. I can't remember why. I think he wanted to do something else. And I saw this as an opportunity to be a part of like basically the coolest band in the area. And we would play these shows at this coffee shop, which was right across the street from where we practiced. So it was funny because we would, you know, 
I would have to pick up the drum set, carry it down the stairs, walk across the street, go up the stairs and put it in the coffee shop. Right. And these were not like normal coffee shop shows. Like these are coffee shop shows where people are doing like the the spin kicks and things like, you know. It was such a wild like little era there where there's shows like that happening in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest with all these little like regional bands that were just had this crazy following. Yeah. We play this show and every single time we would play a show, I would go and go to the coffee shop and look at the flyer to see who was going to be at that show. And I look at this flyer and I see a band called The Devil Wears Prada. And I remember it being a thing because like people were like, Joey, did you see like who's going to play? And I was like, no, who, who is it going to be? And they'd be like, oh, it's this band called The Devil Wears Prada. And we were all like, yeah, what a weird band name. <laughs> Meanwhile, our band's called Coraline, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, they come and they play the show. We are watching their set, and I just remember being like blown away. I was just like, these guys are doing something that is crazy that I've never seen before. That's just, I don't know, it was just wild. And so after their set, I go up to them and I'm like introducing myself. I'm, I'm like, hey, I'm Joey. Like, I, I was a drummer in Coraline, but I also record bands back in Connorsville, Indiana. You know, I'd love to just like show you some stuff that I recorded. And I showed them like a Coraline song that I did. I just remember them being like, that's awesome. Sounds really cool. But, you know, we're actually really more interested in like learning how to record ourselves. And so, they like basically politely rejected me. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And I couldn't get it out of my head that I needed to record this band. And it wasn't, it was just kind of a gut thing. It was just like, I think at the time I looked at it as a way for me to be like, to show that I could do a lot more than the local Connorsville rock band or the local, you know, I would record these high school students and they just didn't know what they were doing. So I didn't have like a professional portfolio to really show what I was actually capable of. So you're like, these guys are on another level. I know that I can do an awesome job of recording them. I need to make this happen. Yeah. And so what I did, I just came up with the idea that I'm going to basically email them once a week and I'm going to always tell them how I'm progressing and I'm going to do it in different ways. Like maybe one week I'm like, hey guys, just wanted to check in. Hope you guys are doing well. I just finished recording this band. You know, here, go check them out. By the way, I just got this brand new like orchestra software that I can make like string sounds sound more realistic. And I knew that they had like an interest in audio production because they were wanting to record themselves. So I guess I was just in those emails, I was just always trying to be like, I'm better than you guys. You should come work mm -hmm. with me. Like I, I know what I'm talking about. I'm getting new microphones. I'm getting new software and trying to do it at a rate that was quicker than they would be able to do it. So you picked up on the fact that the thing they were like passionate about was like the craft of audio and you wanted to show them that you were equally as passionate, but also leveling out faster than they could because they were in a band and you were focused on production. Exactly. Yep. Even that wasn't really enough to convince them. I think the tipping point was, so I was doing all of that. And I think I ended up doing that for like six months or something before they did, you know, agreed to work with me. But then the tipping point was I offered to do their entire EP for like $80, <laughs> which was basically just enough money for me to cover uh, whatever the rent would be. Like I broke the rent down. I think I was paying like $500 a month and I broke that down into how much money would it cost like each day or some kind of thing like 80 bucks. Wow. Yeah, it was just, it was like laughable to the point where I was like, if they say no to this, then it's just really not going to happen. <laughs>
the reason I like this is because there's a lot of people who have this aversion to doing free or cheap work like across the board. And I think that's really short-sighted and dumb because of course you don't want to let people take advantage of you. But this is a perfect example of when it's in your long-term best interest to you know give up the short-term payday because look what it did for the rest of your career to have this on your resume. I think you have to definitely have a level of like intuition about your clients. Like you don't want to do a free or cheap product for someone who seems like they just really are all over the place and they have no idea of what they're going to do after this. Like, let's say you're a designer and you're doing logos for brands and somebody comes to you and is like, I'm starting a new brand, like, and they just seem a little bit like they're in the clouds. Maybe that's someone that hasn't proven that they have a trajectory and they have a direction and a vision and all these things. So when you, when I looked at them, I was like, this band is not going to give up. Like this band is not going to break up. They're going to probably get signed. They're going to definitely go on tour. They are on tour. Like it was worth the discount. Yeah. And the other thing I like there is the idea of hitching your wagon to the winning horse, which I think is really smart. Yeah. Like you identify them as a winning horse and you're like, I need to be part of this because this is going to bring me along too. I could see, you know, where they were going and what they were doing. And then, you know, when you're working with them, you could also see, like, I could just tell, you know, oh, this band is, they were telling me their plans. They were telling me, you know, how they planned to, you know, potentially get signed. And sometimes they would, I I think I can remember, my memory is a little hazy, but I think I remember them coming in one day and we were like doing guitar overdubs or something. And they were like, yeah, man, we're talking to like this manager and we got some interest from, you know, these different labels. When I'm hearing those things, I'm thinking, this is awesome. Like I'm in the right uh, lane, I'm in the right vehicle. And I also knew that if they did choose to do the record with me, that I would be able to charge more. And mm-hmm. and so that's, that's how that worked. And I knew, uh, so right now, take a short-term sacrifice. If they do get signed and things go well and I do a good job, then maybe that will lead to the opportunity to make more money. So they got signed to Rise. Yep. And they came back to you. When did when did you sort of see that you had made a turning point in your career and that bands were coming to you based on the work that they had heard? Like national, like bigger bands. The turning point really came in that two-year time span where I had worked with Prada. We had basically completed that first record and the owner of Rise Records, Craig Erickson, who was also, you know, he was sort of like spearheading that band. He signed them and then he was like, you know, he was like going full force with with getting them out there. He saw something in me, I guess maybe the way it sounded or just something. He saw a spark or something and he decided to contact me and he wanted to be my manager, essentially. He made a proposal to be my manager and I thought that it was, the first thought that I had was red flags. I was like, I've only heard bad things about managers and... From bands complaining about them? Well, just my parents raised me to be very cautious about a lot of things. And I think there's a stigma around managers in general when it comes to the music business. And so, and my dad, you know, he was in the music business for years. So I was just trained, I guess, to like not trust basically anyone really and not trust managers especially. And... Something about it kind of, I was like, well, he's also owns the record label, so that's kind of weird. So I was a little naive to it. But what I decided to do with this opportunity is I was like, I'm going to do this, something with this in my own way. I'm going to come up with basically a demand letter that says, 
here are the 10 things I demand from you, then you can be my manager. <laughs> and what were some of those things? Things like, I want to work with Adam D. I want to do a metal blade record. I want to make like a certain amount of money by a certain time period. I want to own my own home, like just kind of things like that. And when I gave it to him, he w- he just was like, yep, we'll make all of this happen. How many of those things did end up happening? All of them. That's amazing. Yeah, that's the beginning of our working relationship. Also, no contract. Basically, never met the guy, just a verbal agreement on the phone. Mm-hmm. And whenever it was time for him to get paid, he would send me an email and said, here's the bands, here's the amount that they paid, and here's what my 10% comes out to. Mm-hmm. Send me a check. And I did. <laughs> This was when, 2006 or seven? Yeah. And that's what kind of opened up the floodgates. That's when everything exploded because it was a lot of things happening at the same time. Number one, you had Rise starting to explode. Number two, you had the metalcore movement sort of really taking off. And number three, you had a lot of advancements in home recording and audio production Mm -hmm. technology. And four, you had me sort of having these crazy bands come in and say, hey, I want to put like an orchestra part over a breakdown. (laughs) Right. All those things are just expanding and exploding all at once. And uh, that's what really set off the the initial trend was those like formidable years of those records just starting to uh, gain popularity in the scene with like, you know, bands like Attack Attack and Mm -hmm. all these bands just like taking huge creative risks, but creating such a huge underground movement from doing that is what really, I was like basically the the runner of that whole movement. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the next turning point. I'm looking at your Wikipedia discography here, which I'm guessing is probably incomplete, but I'm seeing 2008, there was For the Fallen Dreams, My Children, My Bride, Burden of a Day, Before Their Eyes, Attack, Attack. What would you say after Prado was the next kind of big inflection point? Of Mice and Men was definitely a big switch. I remember when they came in, it was a band that had just been formed. Which was like late 2009, maybe? Yeah, and it was a sort of a pet project of Rise. And they just thought, we've got the right combination of dudes. Let's put them in the studio with Joey and see what happens. And we kind of wrote, that was the first time where I really sat down with the band and was like, I don't want to paint the wrong picture. I didn't have a choice. I sat down with the band and I was like, you guys have three demos. We got to make a record in one month. Like, let's start writing riffs. Let's talk about that to sort of correct one of the misperceptions, you know, is like that Joey does everything, that the band doesn't do anything. It's all Joey. Talk about how that works in the studio, like what your role is or isn't in terms of songwriting and why. So it really varies from artist to artist and project to project. I mean, there's times where I've had an artist come in and we wrote a lot of stuff together and then the same artist comes in at another time and we don't write really that much together at all. Maybe one song, two songs. Like if a band has been on tour for two years and they have to do a record and they only have a couple songs, you might be more involved because we need seven more songs. Yep. But then next time, maybe the band is like, no, we're good. We have all the songs written. We don't need any help on that. Yeah, or the common thing would be we've got pretty much what we think is a good record, but we also want to see what would happen if we wrote a song or two with you. And sometimes those songs would get canned and other times they would be the singles and other times they would just go on the record. So it's really like, you're talking about a hundred albums that I worked on and they all have different scenarios. But Mm -hmm. in general though, I would say that most of the time I was really doing everything. I was doing 
all the engineering, all the editing, all the producing, all the mixing, the mastering, sometimes even the writing. And you can only do that for so long until you're like, this is exhausting, I need help. And then you start to bring in other editors so that you don't have to do the editing anymore. And then that goes pretty well for a while. And then then you're like, okay, this is a lot of tracking work that I need to be doing. So let me bring in like another engineer to help me lift some of those uh, things. And slowly over time, you build a team that you can lean on. I would say that around that time, like 2009 is when your sound really came together. Like in 2008 with like Attack Attack and stuff, it was definitely getting there, but it was still a little rough around the edges. I think 2009 is when it started to sound like really, really, really slick. Yeah, I started to learn a lot more about editing. For example, I think up to that point, I really didn't know how to edit vocals. Hmm. Like the Attack Attack record was a rough one because they wanted their vocals to sound really edited. They want that T-Pain sound. And I had to mm-hmm. like kind of figure out how to do it. So there was that example. And then once I kind of knew how to tune vocals, uh, I really kind of didn't know how to like change the timing of the vocals. And so I kind of invented my own weird editing technique where I would like do what's called cut and crossfade. That was like a whole era. I think you can even hear that happening on Plagues. And then I found out about time warping. And at the same time, I'm at the mercy of the technology too. So like Cubase didn't have time warping in the way that you needed it. So like now you can just grab a part of the word and drag it around. Right. And you couldn't do it back then. No, you had to cut it, move it, and then figure out, okay, it's not long enough and I can't really stretch it. So how do I you know, make it sound like it's not edited, but still on time? And <laughs> so, right. yeah. But anyway, in that time period, it's, it was just the technology and my own skill set was growing pretty fast and at the same speed. Would you say that editing was the key to that sound or what, what is that? Like what made your stuff sound so much like cleaner and tighter and punchier than everybody else? I think it's two things. One, you definitely have editing because editing is... Also deciding what to keep and what to like not keep, I guess, in a way. Think of it like this. Let's say you have a band and you stick a microphone in front of them and they play a song and it sounds great and you record that. Now you're rewarded as being a great producer for some reason. It's like you captured a moment and it sounds good and so everyone's like praising you for it. Right. But then you have a whole nother scenario where the band couldn't even stand in front of you and play the song as written. And you're supposed to find a way to present this in a recorded format. (laughs) And you can't just let it go out and be shitty because your name's on it. Yeah, plus because I couldn't, I just, it's kind of- And you don't want to. Yeah, it's like a thing when you're, like if you're a designer and you you have uh, a standard, right? Like, and it's not just because you want people to look at you as a good designer. It's just like, no, that looks like crap. Uh, like I, I, that just looks crappy. I want to fix it. Right. That's how I felt. Like I would hear a guitar part and I'd be like, "Ugh, it just ugh, it sounds bad." Like, what are you doing? And I'd look at their hands and I'd be like, "Oh, your fingers touching that string. Like, stop doing that." Like, mm-hmm. you know. So I think there was a level of attention to detail that I had where I was really putting all of this stuff under a microscope to like an insane degree. And then also the editing got better. Like I I learned how to work with artists in a way that didn't make them feel like I was completely butchering everything they were giving me. Mm -hmm. And, but I was also still learning how to accomplish, how do I make this actually sound 
the way that I think it should sound, which is almost perfect, you know? Yeah. The editing helped me do that. And then just being a, a Nazi when it comes to looking at everything under a microscope. Yeah. And the reason I mentioned that is because as I found out from working with lots of producers and stuff at Creative Live, like your level of, I don't want to say attention to detail because everyone pays attention to detail, but like your willingness to like adjust everything to like the sample perfect level was just different than everybody else's. When I first learned how to essentially record a whole song, I remember thinking to myself, how do you know, people that make these records, how do they do it? Like, how are they making that kick sound so amazing? And I remember telling myself over and over again, surely they're not working with each individual kick drum. Surely they're not, (laughs) you know, and over time, I just... They can't possibly be aligning every single snare hit. There's thousands of those on an album. Exactly. And I thought that for the longest time until one one day I just really was like, okay, I guess that is what you do. You have to literally move every single individual snare hit if that's what you want it to be like because the drummer isn't putting it where I want it to be or he's not hitting it as hard as I want him to hit it. And I can't, like we would be here all freaking day if I'm like, keep recording the song over and over and over again until it sounds the way I think it should sound. So it took me a really long time to accept that it actually does take you know, like if you're making a, a, a perfect picture in Photoshop, editing every single pixel. Right. It took me so long to accept that that concept. Yeah. Do you want it to be perfect or not? Yeah. And so for anybody listening, imagine this. So a drum set, let's say there's, I don't know, 12 microphones or something on that drum set for, you know, the each piece of the drum set and the overheads and whatever, 12 microphones times however many hundreds of hits are in a song times 10 or 12 songs on an album. That's like thousands and thousands and thousands of individual drum hits on an album and you are manually like perfecting each one of those. Yep. And that and the same for the guitars, the same for the vocals, like that level of precision for everything on the entire album. Yep, straight up. In the beginning, n- not at all, but that's what it progressed to. It got to the point where I would control every single note, every single chord, every single hit, every single consonant every syllable that was the level of control and detail that I was putting into into my work and I think that's a really important thing for people to understand not just in recording I mean in anything like if you want to truly hold yourself to the highest standard like you may have to do that you may have to touch every single fucking pixel of every frame and that's just the way it is and maybe you decide you don't want to but maybe that's what you have to do once you uh, commit to accepting that then it becomes, all right, time to execute. Here we go, yeah. Here we go, let's do it. And then when all you're left with is execution and time, then you you just do it. What else am I going to do? Sit around and go back to playing video games? Like Right. Yeah. The drums aren't going to edit themselves. And what's interesting to me is that's a relatively like simple idea, I guess. It seems like it would be, but I guess nobody else did that because... You listen to the recordings of these bands, and I wouldn't, I don't want to name anybody in particular, but there were like, you know, big successful producers that worked with, you know, bands in this genre, say in 2006, and they sound like shit. And these are people with way more credits than you had at that time and way bigger budgets. I mean, some of these records cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce, and they sounded like shit compared to stuff that you did in your fucking garage <laughs> with bullshit gear a couple years later. Yeah. 
I don't know if I have the best explanation for that, but I, I could at least key it into a few points. It, you know, one would be, I think there was that era of everyone trying to transition off of analog into digital, mm-hmm. and there was definitely a lot of uh, resistance to that idea. I think you also had a resistance level from the artists themselves, not wanting to really be edited. It was like a cool thing to be like, yeah, we did our whole record. It's like, there's not edits on it. Like, you know, people love right. to wear that badge of honor, essentially. And they still do. And they, they like to have pride in their, in their art. And it, at the end of the day, too, it's art. Right. So isn't it weird to have a scientist come and correct your painting, I guess, in a way? (laughs) Right. So um, you have a lot of that working against you. But what I found was that there were a lot of people that wanted me to be doing what I was doing. They were coming to me because they knew that they didn't have to have the riff perfected yet, but I would still make it sound like it was perfect. And that definitely made me a lot of money. And then that was also a very controversial thing for me to deal with because there was a lot of yeah. people in the in the industry who looked at what I did and hated it or thought that I was a joke. I basically dealt with all of the possible hate that could come along with doing what I did. I want to also give people an idea of what kind of circumstances you were working in. Was this like a big fancy studio like you would see in the Metallica documentary or what 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 were you working with in say 2009 when you so you did like in 2009 you did Oceano, Prada, Miss May I, Crimson Armada, Color Morale, Asking Alexandria, We Came as Romans of Mice and Men like that was a fucking insane year. Yeah. What was your setup like then? So that was the year that I essentially transitioned fully from the garage to my house. Uh, and that was my first house that I had in, in Connersville, Indiana. So before then, uh, this is actually another uh, big part of why my sound um, progressed. So before then, I was mixing and recording and doing everything inside of my friend's garage, like I said earlier. And the area where the computer and the monitors were was in this little room that was like, let's just say it was about four and a half feet by like... 15 feet. This is the place that's in the Attack Attack Studio updates, right? Yeah. And so it's a really weird setup because the short side of it, like the four and a half foot length is where the monitors are in front of me and then behind me is a wall. Like if you were to back your chair up, you'd hit the wall like almost immediately. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of like room. and, And so I wasn't necessarily hearing things properly. And then I moved into my house and I set up a whole recording setup there. And this house had an attached garage that was converted into a room that was part of the house. So it wasn't a garage anymore. There was no garage doors or anything like that. And that room, for whatever reason, was really magical because when I set everything up in there, you know, bought a brand new desk, brand new set of speakers. I got a lot of money at this time just because like my expenses were so low. I set all this up and I started working in there and I was like, oh my gosh, like everything changed. I could hear everything so much better. I had a, a a better grasp of like how to react to what I was working with on an audio level. And my speakers were, I went from a $250 pair of speakers to like a $1,000 <laughs> pair of speakers, right? You were on like KRKs or something before? I was on uh, Behringer Truth uh, 2032s or 2022s or some, okay. something like that. 2030s actually, I think is what it's called. And I went up to uh, the Atom A7s. Got it. Then I upgraded again to Atom A7Xs a little after that. But yeah, that that basically... Being able to move out to my house, have a place for the bands to live, sharing the living space with them, and then just working all day long and not being in that garage environment, along with new plugins, new 
drum samples, like all the new things. That was really the just the big level up was all of those things combined. Got it. And this is where I feel like the Joey factory really like was in just full fucking production mode. So 2010, I see here you did Confide, Attack, Attack, Miss May I, Affiance, and I'm sure there's probably some other stuff in there. 2011, Amir, I See Stars, Color Morale, Asking, Of Mice and Men, We Came as Romans, I See Stars, like just one fucking big metalcore band after the next. Yeah, <laughs> we turned it into a factory. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like that is a lot of fucking work to pump out in two years. You know, it wasn't a factory in the sense that, okay, let's just like churn out mediocre like stuff. It was more in the sense that we got hot, like better optimized, the, the process, the workflow, everything. Like even my communication with my manager improved and the communication that I had with other managers improved mm -hmm. and our ability to like move people in and out you know, get the band in on day one, have a process. Okay, day two, we're going to create all the click tracks. Day three, we start recording drums. Like, we have a process down. We start optimizing all this stuff. I start bringing in other team members and, and people to help me, like, edit and, and record. And so, yeah, that's where that all came from. Having my own space, because that garage, you know, was not mine and I was renting it from my friend. Having my own space to, to really structure the entire process was was also key, you know, just controlling the environment is a better way to say it. And for anybody who thinks that all that stuff sounded the same, how much of that is because you wanted everything to sound the same? How much of it is because the bands came to you and said, we like what you did for this other band, make it sound like that? Talk about that. There's a little bit of a, you know, you, when you're a producer, at least for me, one of the things that I <laughs> obsessed over was like the kick and snare sound, right? And I still obsess over it today. And uh, there's very few times where I hear a kick and snare and I go, man, I love that kick and snare sound. Like, I'm just so picky about it. And I don't know why, but I just am. I mean, I would say those are the two, like, if those sound shitty, you can't have a good recording, no matter how good everything else sounds. Yeah. This is what Billy Decker says. He says, kick drums sell records. Like, you have a good kick sound, man. That thing is just going to rock. So... As a producer, you go and try and basically set your own, you're setting your own record every day. Like you come into the studio and you're like, can I beat my best kick sound that I've ever made? And you get to the point where you kind of want to just like use that because you know, okay, I, I know if I, all I got to do, choose this sample, put it through this chain, load this preset that I made, mm -hmm. like it's going to sound great. And the other thing that's working in that favor for that approach is that these records come out and they go on music videos and these music videos get millions of views and then people, you know, rave over the sound of it and they go, mm -hmm. oh, I love the sound of the drums. And then you're going, all right, I'm onto something here. I don't want to change it. Like people love this and it, and it obviously works in the marketplace and I, I love it too. And I don't think I could even yeah. beat it. I mean, especially since they're all kind of roughly in the same genre, it's like there's kind of, you know what you're going for in that genre, like a big, thick, punchy, tight kick drum. Like that's really what you're always going to want in that genre. You're not going to want a Led Zeppelin kick drum in there. Right, yeah. So there was that. That was working, I guess, for that argument. You know, everything sounds the same, homogenous, right? But like you said, there are artists that come in and go, I want to sound like that Attack Attack record that you made. It sounds amazing, sounds exactly what we want to sound like, but we're going to play our own songs. Obviously, they're going to be different, but we want, you know, we like the guitar sounds, we like this or like that and and so who am i to go against what the client is wants like what they are paying me for mm -hmm. you know 
And so it's kind of a two-way street there. Absolutely. All right. And so then the show continues, 2012, 2013. Asking Alexandria, they were the biggest band that you probably ever worked with, right? Yeah. They started to earn a lot of success, and they started to double down. And what I mean by that is they started to you know, get very business savvy, get the right people in their corner. I mean, they were buying their own, they got to the point where they bought their own tour bus so that they didn't have to rent it from a tour bus company all the time. They were doing lots of frugal moves and just getting, you know, kick-ass team members and that enabled them to really scale. And they're very smart guys. These are not like dumb band dudes. Exactly. They take what they do very seriously With their popularity and their willingness to do all of the crazy stuff that I wanted to do production-wise, I mean, you listen to that song, Morta Adabo, it ends with the world exploding and all of the buildings falling down and the apocalypse comes. Creating the sound of all of that, they allowed me to really do that and explore the deeper level of audio production that just wasn't satisfied by other bands. So I think their popularity grew and then my popularity as a producer to be able to accomplish those kinds of things, to, to be able to create these epic soundscapes of all this different stuff from brass sections to buildings falling down. Let's talk about that because I think that's another important part of your sound that people don't talk about that much. Like they talk a lot about Pod Farm and stuff like that, but a big part of it is all that cinematic kind of stuff that you brought in that I don't really think anybody had done before in this genre. Can you can you kind of talk about where that came from and what you did? I think it was a natural progression of you record a band and we come up with an idea to put like an orchestra part in the song and it sounds epic, right? And then the natural progression is, okay, well, I can do that like once or twice a record. So then the next record comes along and you and you do that thing and it's easier to do now because you've done it before. And so then you're like, well, what's going to be the next thing? Maybe I'll put bass drops on some parts or something like that. Then you come to the next record and you do the bass drops and you do the orchestra thing. And this is another thing. A lot of artists wanted this stuff. Like they would come in and be like, yeah, we want to have a part that has like cool strings on it. And then we'd spend, you know, uh, the recording session, like, you know, they'll be at my house for like 30 days at a time, right? So over the 30 days, we're constantly going, I wonder what song that's going to work in. Like, we're So you're not forcing this stuff in there? No, this is like, everybody thought it was amazing, right? Like, they're like, yeah. this is so epic. Like, our band has never sounded this epic before, you know? Epic was like the word. And so just over time, you're like, okay, how does it get bigger and better? Let's put a, the beginning of the song, let's put a car crash. Right. right. And you just get to a level where it just, it gets crazy. And you have a a Gregorian uh, choir chanting this Latin phrase that means the bringer of death. And then Uh buildings exploding and bombs going off and cars like, and then I had a, one of my favorite projects was when Prada came in and they go, all right. This is going to be different than anything we've ever done before, Joey. An EP about a zombie apocalypse. So in this part of the song, we need to sound like there's, you know, 50 zombies chasing you and you have a shotgun and you're shooting them in the head and their head's exploding Mm -hmm. and there's blood splattering. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) how do I do this? And we did it. We figured it out. Yeah, so. One other thing, specific kind of technical thing, you have always done a lot of mastering, which is, uh, at least I think back then, was pretty unusual. Is that right? Yeah. And talk about what exactly that is for anybody who might, might not be familiar and why that's so important to your sound. 
So mastering is sort of sometimes regarded as like the dark arts of audio production. A lot of people don't even know what it is and it's kind of funny. But when I began, I had no clue what mastering was. I thought it was just like maybe a a weird technical part of the process where like you create a certain file that goes to like a mastering plant where they can duplicate it onto CDs or something. I didn't understand what it really was. And uh, famously didn't get to master that first Prada record, Chris Crummett actually mastered it because I didn't know what I was doing. That experience led to me being like, I don't want that to ever happen to me again because I felt really dumb in that moment. I felt like Hmm. I should know how to master, but I didn't. And so I took it upon myself to essentially find the the software I found, Isotope Ozone. And back then, using software like Isotope was a joke in the eyes of like the old school audio people. Yeah, because a lot of people looked at mastering as like, you need these $50,000 like analog processors that you run the audio through and you need like a specialized floating room. Yeah. So that they're like all this stuff, right? You can't just do it at home on your computer. But you had companies like Isotope like, creating this amazing software and trying to lead that advancement technology-wise on the mastering side of things. And I want to hand it out to the developers that they wrote such an amazing manual that it taught me how to master music. Oh, wow. I learned how to master through that manual and then just my intuition of like, oh, they're saying this, so that must mean, okay, this, 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 right? And so I'm, mm-hmm. I, my self-learning thing kicks in, the manual is great, and the software is great too. And so then I started doing a lot of my own mastering, and um, that was definitely unheard of. Cause, and this is the thing too, because record labels had this outdated approach too. They would come to the table and they go, okay, well, you know, Joey's going to be the producer. Then we're going to go get this guy to master it. And they would be doing that right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, you don't need to go get a mastering engineer. I'll, I'll handle it. You know, there was a few years of me definitely having to be like, I'll master it. And if you don't like it, obviously you can go hire somebody else. Did you want to master it just because you wanted to have complete control? There was a couple things going on there. There was one thing where I didn't want to hand it off to someone else and and then have them have the full freedom to basically do whatever they wanted to my work. I didn't like that. The second part of it was I basically didn't know if what I was doing was correct and so I was a little <laughs> right. scared to be like, here's my mix that's unmastered. <laughs> yeah, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I had some insecurities there, but I also was just like, I want my name to be the only name in the credits. Like this album was created by Joey Sturgis. So like if your sound was kind of defined by being the tightest, punchiest, like most aggressive kind of sound, Why was mastering such an important part of that? So mastering is what's going to control the final frequency balance, EQ balance. Like like when you're mastering, you're basically deciding, okay, how trebly do I want this to be? How bassy do I want this to be? You know, what's the mid-range like? You're also controlling, is there a lot of movement? Like, you know, what are the dynamics like? Are the loud parts really loud and the soft parts really soft? Or is there less of a contrast between those two things? The mastering has like the most control over the final product in a sense. And so being able to have the control over that is like, like I don't have to go, if I'm handing it out to someone else, I don't have to hope that they make it aggressive Mm -hmm. because I can be like, no, I want this to specifically be distorted. You did a lot of things that were kind of against the rules of mastering. Like we were talking about this a while ago when I was writing my Attack Attack video, I downloaded Someday Came Suddenly and I was like, holy fuck, this is loud. This was an important part of the MySpace era. People wanted to have the loudest recording. They wanted it to be 
louder than everyone else's so that when you, that song came on, it was like, whoa, yeah, something is going on here. And, and I was into it. I was like, hell yeah, let's have, I, cause the competitive producer in me wanted to have the loudest master, the, a louder master than anybody else that was able to do it and have it not, I wanted it to be loud, but not destroy the mix or destroy the, the production. And so by being able to like produce it and master it, you have total control so that you can kind of make those decisions in a way that fulfills your creative visions. So and if someone else was mastering it, they wouldn't necessarily know what your intent was. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that there's this, I don't know, this part of the music world that's obsessed with dynamic range that thinks it's just so bad to have like a slammed master. And, they'll, you know, sometimes they'll remaster something, be like, see how much worse it sounds when it's slammed? And I'm always like, actually, that sounds way better to me. <laughs> There's definitely a, um, some science behind it. Like if you do have something that has more dynamic range and you put it on a really nice set of speakers and you turn the volume up just a little more than you normally would, it does create a cool real life punchiness that's happening in your room, like with those speakers. How about if you're listening to it on a, compact computer speaker uh, from the MySpace player in 2009. That's exactly right. So the consumption model changed. You didn't have people sitting down in front of their record player and playing it on these hi-fi fidelity systems. You had people listening to it on computer speakers, essentially. I, I you know, It was part of the computer speaker consumption era. Uh, people finding new bands, discovering new bands for the first time at their computer on MySpace or on Napster or whatever. And the first thing that they hear is what com is coming out of their computer speakers. So having a, a hot master at that time gave you an advantage. I think at that time, it, it really made you stand out against other artists. It's not like one is right or wrong. It's more of like, what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for the audiophile setup with the great speakers and preamps and all that? Or are you optimizing for the kid listening on their laptop speakers? And we didn't have to worry about radio because at that time, just w the music we were creating was not going to be played. Yeah, nobody would touch it. Was it was not going to be right. played on radio. So it was like, screw it. Let's do our own little dirty way of doing this. And, and uh, I think it actually did become part of that movement too, was that... When you made a metalcore record or you made a, a record, I mean, it wasn't just metalcore, but when you made these records, they needed to be loud. They needed to be aggressive. You actually would look like the lesser of the scene if your stuff didn't punch as hard as the next band. Right. right? So I had people coming in too with that. That was one of their desires of coming in saying, Joey, we want to punch harder than this record, you know? Yeah. So many of the things that you did... I think we're a product of you being an outsider of like kind of the audio world and having a different idea of what sounds good than kind of the textbook if I went to recording school definition of what sounds good. And personally, I liked your version of good better than like the textbook version. And I think most people did too. Yeah, I was definitely challenged by stuff that I would hear like in the early days when I didn't know how to, you know, how to have any level of punch desired. And when I didn't know how to do that, I was listening to stuff online and I would hear like, you know, a recording from a band that goes and, and works with this guy in Indianapolis, for example. 
I would listen to it and I'd be like, damn, the kick and snare sound crazy. Like, And so there was this competitive loop I was stuck in for a while. And a lot of this took place on the Andy Sneap forum mm-hmm. where you have guys pumping out these metal records and they sound pretty legit. And I'm trying to basically measure up to them in this garage with this Behringer mixer and this Aardvark Q10 PCI interface <laughs> and like these Behringer 2030 Truths. <laughs> like it was just, it was like, I think I had to learn through that process. I learned how to do so many different things that I could manipulate audio to do whatever I wanted it to do, whether I had the the gear to make it easy or not. As that progressed and evolved, that turned into me being able to basically beat those records because I found ways to to do it. I mean, the fact that you, for example, used amp sims, you know, when you did, now everyone uses them and it's fine. But even just the fact that you used amp sims that back then made people really angry. I saw it as a way to have less variables. I was like, if you want to make the most impact or punchy recording, you can't have all these things in your way, which is having a microphone that is on a stand and no matter how tight you tighten it, it still moves micro, you know, millimeters every day, which changes your tone drastically. Mm -hmm. And so I look at that going, how am I supposed to make a record that's going to kick all these Andy Sneap Forum producers' records' asses if my microphone moves a few millimeters every day and the drummer doesn't hit the kick drum hard enough and the vocalist like loses his voice and you know all the variables coming into play. So I learned how to get over those variables through things like, okay, we're going to use amp sims because guess what? Every time you play uh, that drop D open chord through this amp sim, it's going to sound exactly like an op- a drop D open chord and it'll have a predictable sound so we can rely on it throughout the recording process to not be one of the variables that slows us down or takes us away from having that punchy record that we want. Okay, so getting back to kind of the career arc, I wanted to touch on that technical stuff because I think it's really important for people to understand kind of where that sound came from. So that brings us to like 2013. You were still pretty active then. You did Chunk, Attila, Bless the Fall, Born of Osiris... Danger Kids, I See Stars. But then in 2014 and 15, you really slowed down. What was that all about? So I think I started to reach a point of frustration and and the, that came from, this is hindsight, right? So at the time, I had no idea why I was feeling this way. But hindsight is I wasn't being challenged. Hmm. Challenged to me was, okay, can I record three bands at the same time? and then try and triple my income. Like that was like the challenge that I was trying to create for myself. And then the industry would push back and be like, Joey, you can't do this. Like you can't have a mirror and crown the empire in the same studio and staying in two different hotels. Like this is madness. Like how is this going to work? And people just kind of not trusting my ability to do that, which I, I thought I could handle it just fine. I had a big team at the time. So Basically, I moved to Michigan. I did the whole thing where I continued to live with the band. At this time, I had my, who's now my wife, she was my girlfriend, and we were living together, and we were living with the band. She was a nurse, so she would wake up super early. If the band is up late partying and being loud, she's going to be cranky that day, and and it's going to kind of ruin the whole vibe like I'm going to be in a weird state and a weird mood and so my ability to produce and and focus on the music is weird and also there's a lot of drama because basically we moved into a giant house and we had a huge team living there and this is the place you live now your cabin this is before the cabin this is the yeah this is a different spot this is what we call the mansion if for those of you listening and you've followed some of my story 
I rented a mansion for a year and it was... Oh, I remember this. Yeah, It was, yeah. it was okay. super dumb, but it was also really right. cool. <laughs> right. It was really cool too. So you had the drama of like, okay, you've got the intern who leaves a, a bag of potatoes in one of the cabinets and then one day it turns into maggots and you're like, okay, well, I got to deal with that. Then you've got the engineer who's getting bored and he's like dating all these random girls and he's bringing them to this mansion and it's like, okay, that's a whole thing I'm dealing with. And then just all kinds of things, right? So it's a lot of distractions for one. For two, the living with the bands thing just started to really get out of control and, and become a problem in my life. So I had to essentially figure out how can I put myself in a scenario where it is impossible for bands to live with me, but I'm still going to try and make records. So I moved into a tiny, tiny apartment on purpose, <laughs> knowing that there's no way that people will be able to convince me to let them live with me while I'm recording them. They will have to get a hotel. Like, oh, sorry, man, I, I'd love to, but I've only got 600 square feet. Yeah, so we do that. And then now the bands are staying in the hotel because they're forced to, and I'm driving to the studio. This is an epic drive too. It's like a, I think a 60 or 70 minute drive to the studio. So- because of that, I'm at the studio a lot less. Hmm. And that starts to push me a little bit further away from the project. And I, there's no less, I'm not doing less work. I'm certainly producing every single song. If anything, I was doing even more work because I had more time because my team would do basically all of the engineering. So what I would focus on is like, okay, I'm going to take this song, I'm going to load it up on my my DAW and I'm going to like just go nuts with it. I'm going to create like three different versions of the song and I'm going to like try alternate melodies on the chorus and, I, and then just give it to them and say, here's all my ideas. Like, you know, basically pick and choose which parts of it that you think are great and what do you want to use and riff off of it and use it to inspire like wh where you're going. And then I'll check your work and we'll kind of work like that back and forth. But that just like kind of ran its course and it got to the point where um, I was feeling like it was just too easy. You know, I was able to churn out so many albums so quickly and I just needed to, I wanted to do something more with my abilities. And that's when we started selling presets online, which then turned into the mm -hmm. software company and then, right. then URM Academy and all of those things. All the other stuff that that's a whole other topic for another conversation. <laughs> awesome. That was really helpful. Like super inspiring story. Hopefully there's some stuff in here that people haven't heard before. Before I let you go, is there anything else uh, that you feel like people need to know or any kind of words of wisdom for anybody listening? Well, you know, this podcast, if you're listening to this like years later, this might not matter, but it comes at a timely period where you're in quarantine or you're, you know, you're facing this pandemic this is very similar to my formidable years. I sat in a room in front of a computer for days, years at a time, reading web pages, programming video games, figuring out the things that would become my superpowers and turn me into who I am today. And so I would look at this as an opportunity to just hunker down on something and turn on your self-learning ability and and turn that into something where you do all the the research you can and all take all this time to turn this pandemic into an opportunity where you might stumble on onto a new trend or a new thing that you didn't have time to 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 face otherwise and that could turn into something really big and i think that's just an inspiring way i'd like to end this well let me piggyback one thing on there that i meant to mention earlier I don't remember what it was. It might have been something about the stream machine. I don't remember. But there was something maybe a year ago or something that you figured out that was really kind of clever and, and helped us in a big way. I don't remember what it was. And it was super random and obscure. And I was like, how the fuck did you figure that out? And you said, I read the manual. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. 
that's an option. And and I guess what what you said that made me think about that is like, you know, A, that you learned how to master from reading the isotope manual, the ozone manual. And, you know, what you just said about doing the research is like every fucking piece of information you could possibly fucking want is out there now, probably for free, if not free, super cheap. So there's absolutely no excuse for not learning any skill right now. The only barrier is, are you willing to grind like Joey did, editing all those fucking drums over the years, reading all those manuals over the years? That is the only barrier. Here's something that's amazing. If you, like for example, YouTube has taken the the how-to world by storm, right? You want to learn how to do anything? You go on YouTube, you can search for it. But then you have people going, well, yeah, but I don't want to watch all the videos. Then don't. That's not even an excuse though. <laughs> you can take someone's video because it's public domain. You grab the URL, you go to rev.com, you paste the URL, yep. get a transcript. You can search the transcript. Oh, but that costs $8. Oh. All right, then. I guess if $8 is a barrier between you and your fucking dreams, then you lose. <laughs> That's exactly right. Like, I buy books every day, and I'll just do it just so I can search one thing that I'm trying to find. Like, I don't care. Like, I want the information. So if you have that kind of drive, put it to use right now. Yep. It, it'll be amazing for you. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time. I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate it, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, and of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.